So we're going to begin with uh, the two medical and surgical asepsis. Now, um, we want to just browse and uh, complete these topics that we've done before. Um, we're just going to give a reminder of how we do these things. So medical and surgical asepsis. These are practices that refer to how we work out things to like uh, prevent disease transmission or microbes transmission. Um, it is just the absence of Ill, illness-producing organism in our midst. That's why we call asepsis. Now, we have medical and surgical. In medical, precisely, we are not getting rid of microbes, but we are reducing microbes and their effect <clears throat> in medical asepsis. It is in surgical asepsis that we want to get rid of microbes, we have to eliminate them and provide what we call a sterile field, a field that, a field that is free from microbes in surgical asepsis. Um, so we use sterile technique in surgical asepsis and we use clean techniques in medical asepsis. Now, the challenge becomes how do we figure out what is medical asepsis and what is surgical asepsis in the ankles? Um, in some instances, the ankles will present us these uh, different techniques and uh, they, want to, they want us to know exactly which technique is useful in sterile procedure or which technique can be used in medical procedure. Um, so if you are like providing PO medication, that does not require you to do sterile technique. It requires a, a clean technique. And that's why in clean technique, when we administer a medication, a pills, a syrup, or any other pill medication, we want to like either wash our hands or disinfect our hands between two patients or between two uh, objects that we are touching. And likewise, when we are between patient to patient, we cannot wear a glove, we want to either disinfect our hands or wash our hands to go into another patient. So these are, I guess, common rules when it comes to medical asepsis. Now, in medical asepsis, we need to wash our hands. When you're washing our hands, we got to understand the proceedings in washing our hands. Um, 15 seconds is enough to remove any transient flora or any transient microbes that is in our hands or in our palms. So just washing hands with soap and water in 15 seconds should be enough to remove microbes from our hands. Yeah? Now, and uh, we can go up to two minutes if our hands are sore. If we can see physical dirt in our hands, meaning we'll go up to two minutes. Um, these are things we do, and we we'll make sure we cannot open the faucet of our hands after washing our hands. We've got to use a paper towel to close the faucet after washing our hands. And also for hand hygiene, uh, with an alcohol-based product, if we're using an antiseptic solution or we are using a disinfectant like a um, hand sanitizer, we should recommend at least three to four ml in our palm to rub in our palm together vigorously. That will go between our fingers, make sure it is from our wrist down towards our fingertip, interlace our finger, rub it back and, back and front until 
the entire hands, the palms, the back of the palms are all touched by the uh, by the disinfectant or the hand sanitizer. If we are to use that, so we can do this to like uh, disinfect our hands. We dry the fingers, dry the hand, and then go back and do another procedure. Now, this comes with the anklets, and uh, so that is just an example of our. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about um, medical asepsis. Now, for surgical asepsis, um, we have to create a sterile field. We have to create one. That's one. If we did not create the sterile field, we have to maintain it. Sanitary uh, the sterile field. We have to maintain it. We have to maintain the sterile field sterility in order to avoid microbes from coming in there. Because the sterile field, it should be 100% microbe-free. Now, for the sterile field, um, we do not want to expose it to even airborne, airborne, or uh, airborne microorganism, which can break the sterility of the field. So that's why we have to avoid coughing, sneezing, talking directly over the sterile field. And you see, if we attend surgery with some doctors, they do not want anyone to even talk in the OR because when the OR is ready, it's sterile, it's clean, it's it's it's, it's sterile. So. Even talking, because when we talk, our, our our GI tract contains so many different microbes. So when we're talking, the breath that comes out from our GI tract and our nostrils and other things contain bacteria and other microbes. So it's gonna this it's gonna create infection of the entire field. That's what's happening in there. Um so advise the client to avoid movement suddenly, refrain from uh, from touching supplies. The, the sterile drips or the nurses' gloves and gowns should be avoided from touching them, and we cannot talk over the sterile fee. In a sterile fee, there are only sterile items can be in the sterile fee, and those sterile items should be only in the sterile fee. If it is taken from the sterile fee and leave the sterile fee and comes back, it is not sterile anymore. So the auto wrapping of the sterile feed, the auto wrapping has what we call um it has uh it has uh one inch edges of every of the four feet and those one inch edges on the sterile feed contain sterile items that are not sterile, meaning the only part of it is sterile, the top portion it is not sterile and when we look at the sterile feed. So that's why, like in the anklets, let's look at something here. In the anklets, we might have um, we might have some problem coming up in the anklets. Um, <clears throat> in the anklets, let's take for example, we have uh, we have we have uh, a problem like this. Let's look at something. You have something like a <clears throat> now. Let's look at in this uh in this therapy. If you have a sterile drip to look at in the store or, or, or in the hold on let me get a a new page um now in the sterile field let's say you had a problem and you had the sterile field in this form here now in this form this is a sterile field now this particular portion of the of the sterile field you have it further in this way in this way now the top part of this sterile field would not be sterile but the under part of it is terror because it is the portion you're going to hold to lift and open the terror. So this will be I'm not seeing you. I'm not seeing you. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't, 
I didn't share the, I, I didn't share my stream. So like um, so so you're gonna have it like that. So um, so in the sterile field, you're gonna have it in this way. So like I said, um, in this portion, you will have the sterile field like this. This this is a sterile area. This top portion that is folded in wall here. On top of it is not sterile. It's clean but not sterile. Beneath it is sterile. It is the portion that you would grab with your fingertip and open the feet because it's kind of kind of like this. It's folded in this in this in this way. So this top portion is not sterile, but underneath this portion is sterile because you hold the top portion and you open it like like you remember when you are like uh, doing like <clears throat> when you are wearing a glove, right? When you are wearing so a surgical glove, when you open the glove, the top of the glove that you're gonna pinch with your fingertip is not sterile. But underneath that top portion is sterile. So this is because in the end they're gonna ask you, they'll give you a portion, they'll give you a diagram of the entire sterile drape, and they'll ask you the portion that is not sterile, that is clean and nasty, and they want you to pinpoint that portion. So that's why I'm just going over that so that we can know that. So they so they will have a one-inch border. That is <clears throat> not sterile. That cover the sterile feet. I will have to hold or have to pinch to lift up the sterile uh, <clears throat> to open the entire drape. Now, so microbes in the sterile feet are removed. Are moved from one place to another place through gravity. So you do not reach across or above the sterile feet. So, so we cannot. That's why when you look at in this, when you look in surgical feet or in the surgical area. <clears throat> this thing is uh, when you are doing a surgery or when you watch a surgical procedure or even a sterile procedure because nurses can do sterile procedure. You, if you have this item in this uh, on, on the field in this manner, you have let's say you, you, you have the knife, you have the knife here, the scissors coming here, you have it like this, you have the faucet coming here, you have it like this. So, they are arranged in the way that the doctor will pick them up according to how they are arranged. So, the first thing the doctor will need will be number one, number two, number three, and number four. So, the first thing is the knife. They will use the knife to want to cut. The scissors the scissor are claimed to claim. So, <clears throat> because we cannot remove number one from here and put it here, then the sterile are then destroyed. So, we cannot take the scissors from here and put it at the back here and take it again and put it. So, if we use this knife, meaning we are done using it. So we cannot put it back in the sterile and that's why the procedure in surgery, in, in surgery should, should be maintained. It should help to maintain the sterility of the procedure. So we cannot remove one item from here and put it back at the back. So we can do that in surgical uh in 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 sterility. If we do that, if we do that, meaning it is it destroys the sterility of the procedure the procedure that we are doing. So <clears throat> these are things we do. You hold item to add. To a sterile feet at a minimum of six inches above the feet. If it goes above six inches above the sterile feet, it is not sterile anymore. So we cannot bring it back. So above six inches, it is not sterile. Below six inches from the sterile feet, it still maintains its sterility. Now, the sterile feet is this anything that is sterile is a waterproof. Anything that is sterile is a waterproof or it has a waterproof coating because if it gets wet. It is not sterile anymore. If it falls to the floor, it is not sterile anymore. So that's how we look at it. Now, if you open a sterile drip and you remove anything above your chest area, it is not sterile anymore. Below your waist, 
it is not sterile. So sterility is maintained between your waist to your chest area. Between that, that becomes maintenance area of our sterility. So we gotta look at these common things and know them very well. So anytime a solution we are working with the sterile field in a in a solution pours got poured into the sterile field, that sterile field is not sterile. Now, let's get this right. If if it, if it is even a saline that we got the angle will give you a case scenario. The nurse was doing a sterile procedure and the newly open or uh, normal saline wasted in the sterile field. Now they were presented in a way that it will look so, it will sound so good to your ear. But let's remember anything of, of liquid that drops in the sterile field, the sterile field has been destroyed. It could even be medication. It could even be antibiotics, medication, liquid in a vial or in an ampule. If it drops in the sterile field, as far as concerned, the sterile field is destroyed. So we cannot use that sterile field. These are common things want to understand about these sterilities. Any question on that? <clears throat> now, let's look at infection control. Now, in infection, in, in infection control, it is one big thing about the end we have to understand about infection control. And why we need to understand infection control is there are different kind of infection control mechanisms that we can use in the ankles that, that we use in nursing that we want to see them in the ankles and these different style of infection control we have to understand those diseases that come with each infection control system we have to understand them and uh, if we understand them they're going to work for us they're going to help us a lot um we have different kind of Pathogens that cause infection. It is not my concern because the anger is not big on that. The anger is big on how can we avoid an airborne condition or what are those disease conditions that are for that are for on an airborne, on a droplet, on a contact precaution. What is standard precaution? What is those? Those are things the anger is really focused on for us to know exactly what's happening in there. Now, when it comes to another thing is. We gotta understand our kind of immunity. So you wanna go back and review the kind of immunity, passive immunity and active immunity, natural immunity and acquired immunity. Now, sometimes we not sometimes, as always, we cannot memorize this thing because it's not gonna work for us. There are things in the English we can memorize. It works for us. There are things that we will never it will memorize it, we will make ourselves confused. And one is this kind of immunity. We cannot memorize this immunity. The names of the immunity will tell exactly what they are. Passive, acquire immunity. Passive, acquire immunity. Active, acquire immunity. It's active, it's acquired. Probably you got it true, true, you true. Meaning that is active, it was acquired. Your mom took the vaccine and then you acquire it as a baby. That becomes passive or that becomes active, acquired. Now, it could be two other means. So, we want to go back and look at those immunity one at a time. Understand what is the passive one. In the passive one, we said antibodies are produced by an external source. It's passive, meaning we got it from somewhere. If it is active, 
antibodies are produced by ourself, but they were produced in response to certain things we call antigen. That becomes the active immunity. So let's take example. Like if you had a disease condition, and your body responded to this condition, and your body produced uh, uh, antibodies in response to an antigen introduced to the body, that will be an active but you got it from somewhere, right? So that will be acquired active or active acquired immunity because your body produces, but you got it from some somewhere. So it was acquired. Now they have some that is natural. We are born with it. They are there. So in these things, you have to go back and rehearse them one at a time. We did them, but I'm just bringing it so that we can modern and go back and rehearse them for these things. We have to understand the chain of infection control because of the agent whether it is bacteria or it is virus, we have to understand those common symptoms that, that come with viral infection. Those ones that come with bacterial infection, you know, when we did bacterial and viral meningitis, we had a huge uh, comparison between bacteria and viral meningitis. We look at those comparisons, we we'll talk about them, we we'll tell in viral, the WBC might be uh, the same or slightly elevated in bacteria, will have increased the ABC. We we'll, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about these things in the, uh, the other day when we're doing the English. So, what do we remember these things well to go with it as we go along? Now, another so important. Yeah. Yeah, so Fasco. Mm -hmm. So, uh, with uh, passive, right? Mm -hmm. So, when you consider fasting, all fasting passive, because they take, uh, they take uh, the, the, um, the, the, the virus to make it. Because they introduce the virus within a body. Yes, vaccine is passive immunity. Because in passive immunity, um, we introduce antibodies to, to the body to create immunity, to create defense. That becomes a passive immunity. So it could be from, it could be a vaccine, it could be from someone's body like a serum, it could be from an animal. They are all passive. Once it came from somewhere, they are passive immunity. So you have, so you have like a, in the case of active immunity, a result when there's an exposure to a disease organism that triggers our immune system to produce antibodies. So if you got a disease condition and your body was, your body immunity was triggered to produce antibody, and antibody was produced by yourself and fought the disease condition, that becomes an active immunity. So, so I wanted to ask you for Lassa, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody catch Lassa and get killed. So when they get killed in that process, they have for active, but when they take their serum and give it to somebody else that have Lassa to kill them, that's a passive. That passive. So passive okay. is provided when a person is given an antibody. Either through vaccine or through animal source or from another person, that becomes a passive immunity rather than they themselves producing it. So let's take, example, let's, let's, let's take a newborn baby, right? <clears throat> let's take example, a newborn baby. Um, had... Hello? Yeah. yeah. So, for example, the COVID vaccine that we take in. So that's passive. That's passive. Yes. So, and the reaction, the reaction for it is considered passive immunity. 
it is passive you know, because you got it from an outside source. Mm -hmm. So passive, when it comes from outside, is passive. Mm -hmm. When it's active, meaning your body produces it by your body produces it. So it could be um, once it is it is active, meaning you produce it on your own. If it's keep from an outside source, it's it's, it's passive. Let's be honest, let's that. From the outside okay. source, it's passive. From your from your own body, it is it is active. Now, a newborn baby acquires a passive immunity from the mother to the placenta, right? So that becomes a passive. The baby got a got immunity from tetanus because the mom took tetanus vaccine when she was pregnant, or the mom took vaccines against certain condition. And the baby got this vaccine through got this immunity through um through the mother's placenta. So in this situation, the baby is having a what a passive immunity. So that's what's happening here. The baby is having a passive immunity. Now, another thing about this passive immunity is also <clears throat> um we have to understand not just passive and active, we have passive acquire passive. Oh, uh, we have a uh, natural passive, natural uh, natural active. <clears throat> there are different types, but I cannot get it. But what we need to do is that if you go to the book, you will see all the kinds in there. <clears throat> now, then even if you don't know it, but the name tells you exactly what's happening. The name will tell you what is what about the particular email that, that you want to know about. Now, those are things you you, you, you you want to go ahead and look at them. Because if you look at them, you will know a different kind of immunity. But just on another, there are two major ones. You have uh, passive and active. You have natural and artificial. Now, so you can look at those two words. Natural means your body made it on its own. It, it was not introduced. Artificial means it was introduced through another source. Likewise, active and passive. Active means your body produces it by itself in response to antigen introduced to your body through illness. And then when we talk about uh, uh, passive means you got it from external source to protect your body. So in most cases, passive is not for long-term use. It's for a short-term use because through vaccines. Vaccine, that's why vaccines always have a booster. So like you took... The vaccine for TB years ago. That is years ago. Now you're gonna go and get the what the booster. You took vaccines for hepatitis ten years ago, five years ago. After a certain time, you go back and do the the booster dose. You took a vaccine for Tdap when you were growing up. It's been a while, so you went back and took a booster dose to boost up your immunity against Tdap infection. So these are things that are. You want to go ahead and look at them because it is important to know this thing difference between them so that when you get to the anklets, even if it comes from the anklets, we are good with it at the anklets. Now, so when, when the baby go for their, their annual vaccinations, the reactions they get with getting fever is passive. No, it is the amount of a passive, it is not the reaction, it is this, it is the defense your body put up. Against sickness, that's what I'm talking about active and passive. It is not the reaction from the vaccine that makes the child get ill or that makes you ill. It is not 
that I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I'm talking about passive immediate. I'm talking about the strength. That is, passive immediate means immediate as a whole means your defense, how your cells can defend you in terms of illness. That's about pass. That's about immunity. So when they say you have a strong immunity, now why do we take zinc? We take uh all those vitamin D and other things. In, 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 we have COVID because those things are drugs that will help the wire to increase the strength of our immunity. So when COVID, like when I had the COVID, I took uh this medication. I took the zinc. I took the vitamin D. I took the other drugs that help to boost your immunity. I took those mm -hmm. things because. I want to strengthen, I want to be my immunity strong against the COVID virus. That's why I took this medication. So when you talk about passive immunity, we're talking about immunity that, that is defense that you get from outside sources. It could be vaccines. It could be from somebody. It could be from animal. Those are passive immunity. Now, the reaction you get from these vaccines, like a child took a uh, flu vaccine, other things, the child came out with fever. That is not immunity. That is the reaction from those vaccines. It could be the side effect or an adverse effect from the vaccines. So that is not that is not what we're talking about the, the passive. So the passive is the way how you build defense against an outbreak of disease condition, or the way how you get a defense to defend or to, to prevent disease occurrences. That's what we're talking about. Now, under this condition. We have to understand the mode of transmission for all these infectious diseases. It is important to get the mode of transmission because this mode of transmission can help us a lot. We have to understand how do you con contract COVID virus, the coronavirus? How do you contract measles? How do you contract uh, C. difficult? These are all our the mode of transmission. It talks about how you contract these diseases. That becomes the mode of tra transmission. Now, also you have vector-borne transmission mode. You have uh, what we call droplet, you have airborne, and you have contact. Under contact, we have direct and indirect. We have fecal oral route. So under contact, we have direct, indirect, and we have fecal oral route. On our droplets, when we have droplet, we have airborne, we have vector. So on our droplet, we're talking about sneezing, coughing, or talking. Because that's how we can we can spread droplets from our body. Through talking, when you sneeze, when you cough, you put out droplets. Now when we talk about vector borne, it's true animal or insect. Example is what? Malaria. Malaria is a vector borne disease because the anaphylax female mosquito will transmit the blood of another infected person into another person that become a vector borne transmission. Then we we'll talk about uh, the airborne. Airborne could be through sneezing or coughing. Also, you cough in the air and it's transmitted to somebody else. So I we'll understand which one is airborne, which one is which one is fecal. It's important for the anchors. Another thing for this infection control is to understand. The stages of infection. Now we have the first year of infection, which becomes the what? The incubation period. The period it takes for the disease to be introduced to the body, and then the time it takes to show the first symptom. So from the point of disease introduction to the body to the point of its first symptoms is what we call the incubation period. So that time it takes the organism to 
to manifest itself into sickness, into a symptom, becomes the incubation period. Then we have the next one is the prodromal stage. The prodromal stage it is the interval between the onset of the general symptom to more distinctive symptoms. That is, the time it takes from the first symptom to appear to the time it takes for us to have the real signal condition that we can differentiate the condition from other conditions, that becomes the prodromal period. And this period varies with disease condition, just like the incubation period of real disease condition. So that's why they will see that if you exposed to the coronavirus, stay home for what? 14 days. Because it might take 14 days the highest. It could be 3, 4, 5, 6, to 10 days, to 14 days. But it takes 14 days for the virus to manifest into our system. For us showing the first symptom, it takes up to 14 days. That's why we stay home for her for 14 days. If we can start seeing, if we can go out of work, it's another symptom. Then we have the illness stage. It's a stage in which the symptoms will sort of be very strong and will be very clear. That we all can see, oh yeah, this man has coronavirus. Oh, this person has diarrhea. Oh, this because you can get now. We agree that there are some conditions that might have a shorter incubation period. Don't get me wrong. Yes, some conditions you can try in less than an hour, you will have the symptoms. Some conditions, some organizations are just drastic and they are terrible. They are dangerous. They are very fast. Some will take time. Some take days. Some take even months. Before it become clearer and uh, uh, clear to the, the, the uh, to the individual, then we have the convalescence period. Now, the convalescence period is the last period in the illness. It is the period in which the acute symptom will, will disappear. The client will have total recovery. So it is the last period of infection, and it is the best period that, that, that the client will stop having the symptoms, and then the client will sort of recover gradually. That might take long time it varies also depending on different disease organisms these are all things that we're going to look at then uh what is important under here is um when we have infection there are some uh, laboratory tests we want to go ahead and do these tests will help us to for us to know what we are having um these tests include we'll do leukocytosis we'll do red blood cells and we said the wet blood cells, when it is increased to a certain extent above normal, the client is expected to have bacterial infection. In viral infection, it might be slightly increased or decreased, or it might be normal. But in bacterial infection, it will be very highly increased. Then we have, um, we can do differential diagnosis. There will be a left shift, which is an increase in neutrophil when the client has specific infection they will do the esr which is a the regular size sedimentary rate this will also be elevated when there is an infection because when there's infection there will be inflammation and once you have the lab result called esr the irregular size sedimentary rate once you have an inflammatory problem in your body there will be an increase in the esr so remember this when we're doing just uh, this content we said whenever there's an if there's an infection in, in, in there's an inflammation in our body, if our body responds by having increase in the Y in our erectile side sedimentary rate. That's what happened in the case of inflammation. And there will be 
expression of the microorganism or do culture of the blood, we see the presence of that particular organism in our body. We see that. We can go ahead, we can do the gallium scan. The gallium scan, um, this gallium scan can be done in the case of uh, when we do, um, we'll go ahead and do this test. Now, so, so uh, for the gallium scan, it's spelled as, uh, it's spelled as G-A-L-L-I-U-M. It's spelled as G-A-L-L-I-U-M, the gallium scan. Now, this gallium scan, it is a test that we do. Um, it uses a radioactive substance to identify hot spots of WBC in our body. So, so this gallium scan identify hot spots of WBC in our body. Then we have the radioactive gallium citrate. Radioactive gallium citrate is seen as gallium. The citrate is C-I-T-R-A-T-E. Radioactive gallium citrate. Now, this radioactive gallium uh, or citrate it is a test that we use, we inject into the IV and accumulate in area of inflammation. So when we introduce this to our body, if there's an inflammation within the GI tract, you'll see this radioactive gallium uh, substance will, will move towards the GI tract and it will accumulate around that particular portion of the GI tract. So if this is the GI tract and this, this, this here is the, is the colon and the colon is inflamed, you'll see this radioactive gallium spot will come in and surround this particular area of the colon. So we know that indeed, after the test, we know that the colon is inflamed. So that's how we do this particular gallium skin. So we can do it here and you will see how it works in this area. Now, then we also have, uh, we also have what we call, we do x-ray, CT scan, MRI, biopsy to know what's happening to some of these infections. A lot of things can happen here. So we want to go ahead and look at the nursing management and read them and know them very well. Now, when it comes to infection, we have guidelines for inflam for isolation. When we have certain infection, we want to isolate our patient or ourselves like COVID-19, right? So like a and many people were dying uh, during the time of Ebola outbreak was Africa because we did not follow as isolation um, as the procedure for isolation. Now, sometimes it's difficult because you have your, your husband, you have your wife, he's sick, he needs help, and you want to show him that love. So how can we differentiate that point with isolation? Sometimes, and that's how people died from Ebola virus because... Husbands or wives could not allow their, their, their loved ones to isolate themselves without they caring for without someone caring for them. So they were going to care for them in the in the time of caring for them, they also got infected and the and the patient and the and the husband died and the wife also passed away. Now, so these things happen. So we want to understand what are some of those guidelines when it comes to isolation. Now, we have to make sure we apply it to every patient, regardless of the patient diagnosis, regardless of your your link to the patient, how well you and the patient are cool or friendly, you have to implement these guidelines. It is important. You want to change the personal protective equipment, the PPEs after contact with each patient between procedures with the same patient and 
when he comes in contact with a large amount of blood and body fluid. So even if even if, if, if it's the same patient and uh, you keep in contact with the same patient and you do it for them two different procedures, you want to always change your glove between procedures. It is important to do that when you are when you are handling patient at the same time. This can reduce the risk for the patient. We also not when it comes to isolation, one of the most difficult thing is depression. Most patients who are isolated from their friends, their family, their relatives, their loved ones in terms of illness, they often come down with what? Depression. It is the major problem when it comes to isolation. Depression is the big problem. Now, so we have to assist the family and the patient to understand the purpose and the reasons why we are doing this isolation. It is important. That is our nursing goal when it comes to isolation. Now, in these conditions, there are two things on here. We'll look at one, there are two kinds of uh, precautions. We have called tire one and we have tire two. Now let's let's do a little screen sharing and see what I was talking about tire one and tire two. Now in tire one, uh we call a standard precaution. When we do tire one, it's called standard precaution. Let's look at Tire one is T I E R. Tire one. Tire one precaution is what we call standard precaution. You see here is standard precaution. And what is standard precaution? In this tire one precaution, we apply is applies to all body fluid except the sweat. We're not seeing you. So tire one is applied to all body fluid except the sweat. So if we're doing tire one precaution. It is what we call standard precaution, tire one. So tire one is applied to all body fluid besides the sweat. So hair hygiene will fall under tire one. So non-skin tight skin, mucous membranes uh, are those body fluids that you want to always that follow tire one. Hair hygiene, you see hair hygiene is number one. In hair hygiene, we want to use an alcohol-based waterless product or solution that we can help to what cleans our hand or when we have when we have when we feel like our hands are dirty, not visible dirt. When we have visible dirt in our hand, we do not use hand sanitizer. We're gonna wash our hands. Like I said, up to two minutes when we have visible dirt in our hands, it could be visible fluid in our hand. We got to wash our hands. If our hands are not dirty, our hands are not wet, we cannot see dirt in our hands, then we can use the hand sanitizer to disinfect our hands. Another thing is use of personal protective equipment. We gotta use gloves, masks, and eyewear or goggles when we are using tire one precautions. In tire one precautions, we gotta use these things: masks, eye protection, face shield are all required when. Here might cause splashing or spraying of body spray in tire one. In tire one, also, we got to wear clean glove or when we are touching anything that has the potential to contaminate um, the hands of the nurse. This include it could be body secretion, it could be body excretion, it could be blood, it could be body fluid, it could be non-intact skin, it could be mucous membrane, it could be the arms or items that are contaminated we got to use glove to do these things hair hygiene is also required after we remove a glove 
We also use it for so many reasons. We want to clean all the equipment for client care, dispose of one-time use items that or to or let's say the disposable one time that is the the glove is is a is a is is a disposable glove we can use it one time there are some gloves that are not disposable i have seen that they have those thick gloves sometimes sometimes they use in a in a on the labor wall so those gloves that are not that are not disposable when you remove it we got to re-sterilize them if they are disposable we'll take take them from our hands we got to put them in the wire in the trash uh in the in the in the very safe the, the disposable area according to facility facility policy we got to make sure that all these things are done so under tire one you have hand hygiene you have ppe's the ppe's we use in tire ones are gloves masks and eye shield in tire one in tire one we can use respiratory hygiene they could follow the coughing etiquette Put your hands, uh, do not cough into the air. Use something to cough in the air. Entire one, we also follow the coughing etiquette. Sharp safety and uh, sharp shafts and safety. Uh, sharp safety is also important if for entire one. And uh, safe injection practices, putting injection to where it's supposed to be after using it. And how do we administer injection? How do we, how would we should not cap injection, recap injection after using it? All those things, sterile instrument devices are all on a tire one. Now, on a tire one, um, these are things that are, that we look at on a on a tire one. Now, you have no precaution. They are listed in here: hand hygiene, use of PPEs, respiratory hygiene and coughing etiquette, sharp safety, safe injection practices, sterile instrument and devices, clean and disinfected environmental surfaces. These are all under tire one now because in the end class, you can understand why are those things are for under tire one and why are those one are for under tire two. So, when you look at it under here, you want to go back and read this thing, they will tell you everything the do's and don'ts about hand hygiene equipment and other things. You look at all these things under here to go through them now. Needle sticks and other things, the most percutaneous injuries, which is needle stick. Cut with sharp object among all these things involve birds, needles, and other sharp instruments. Implementation of the OSHA blood bomb pathogen standard has helped to protect a lot of these things in workplaces from nurses. Now, so we have to know where to put our sharpies, our sharp objects, and other things. We have to understand where to put these things because if we do not understand how to use them and, and, and to save them, to place them safely, they might cause harm. To our staff, to ourselves, to our patients on the unit, which is which is not a good thing, also. Now, then we look at tire two. In tire two, we talk about transmission precaution. Tire two talk about mostly transmission precaution, and in tire two, we are looking at airborne droplets, contact precaution, protective precaution. So there are four different precautions on tire two. Tire one has one precaution, which is safe, which is standard precaution. And standard precaution, it is it says that one wash your hands before and after interacting with a patient. So whatever the patient is, your son, your daughter, your who, wash your hands before touching them, and wash your hands after touching them. And if you have to come in contact with someone, uh, body fluid besides besides sweat, 
you want to make sure that you wear gloves. That is thinner precaution. So let's for you those things that fall thinner precaution. Then we'll look at tire two, talks about transmission precaution. Tire two talks about transmission precaution. Those include you have airborne precaution, you have the airborne precaution, you have the droplet precaution, and you have uh, the contact, and the last one becomes the protective precaution. All of this one for honor tire two. Now, honor tire two, we want to go and look at specific things about this tire. So, so for tire for tire two, let's look at some specific about about tire two precaution. In tire two precaution, um, it prevents transmission of infectious agent. So that's what is that's what happened in tire two. So we we'll look at that. We we'll look at airborne. For airborne, we said. We use airborne precaution to protect against droplet infection. Any microorganism that is smaller than five micrograms, it falls on an airborne. So all of those airborne diseases that you see, they are called airborne. They are microorganisms. They are smaller in size than five micrograms. So they are required to be on an airborne. Examples include the what? The minsos, the varicella. The pulmonary microbes, laryngea bronchitis or TB, laryngea TB, all those causes agents for this condition I guess talk about. These are all agents that can that are that their size weigh lower than five micrograms. So they fall under airborne. So in the end class, you want to understand what are those conditions that fall under airborne precaution. Then you have um, for airborne precaution, the client will need a private room. That's one. Unless the client and another client have the same condition, then they can share room. But if they do not have the same condition, we cannot share room with them. Even if they are from the same house, we don't know that because they don't have the same condition. That's why we will pair a menstrual patient with a menstrual patient. Now, then we said... For these individuals, mask and respiratory protection devices for caregiver and visitor are required. So those who own a tire one on an airborne, they will need masks and respiratory agents or, or devices for their caregiver to wear and come to them or when they have visitors coming coming to see them, they should wear it. And that's why when someone has TB and the person has not gone through certain the person is still the person is still in the in, uh, the, person, the person has TB. When going to visit the person, you gotta wear a mask. They give you a mask to wear because the person is not safe from transmitting the condition. COVID nineteen is another example. You gotta wear masks to visit matter who has COVID or else you might get the condition. Now, and the use of the N ninety five mask or the HIPAA mask is known. Uh, if the client is to if, if the client is to have TB, then we can use that. Now, the, the client will go in the wire in a negative pressure room. Remember that the client with these conditions, they will go in the wire negative pressure room. They gotta be in a private room. In, in the private room, these are common do's and don'ts about airborne precaution. Any question? Yeah, my hands are. Yeah. So um for 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 the uh, um. The cohort of clients, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, if the client uh, on our airborne, yeah, we have to have the same uh, uh, disease before 
you can call her name, right? Yes. Or you can call her or any to say, oh, because this is airborne like Misa and, and TV. No. So we can call her. We can call her or we can pair two persons with TV together in the same room. Okay. We cannot we we cannot uh put together a person with TB and menses because they might get cross infection. The one yes. who has TB will also come down with measles. The one who has measles will come down with TB. Then that becomes two immune conditions that might even be so grave to the patient than the first one. So only if they have the same condition, they can be they can be in the same room. And what else now? What is negative pressure room? The client who's in negative pressure room will have can have this condition. They are airborne infected patients. And for them, when you are in the negative pressure room, there will only be 12 air exchanges or 6 to 12 per hour. So in every hour, there will be 6 to 12 air exchanges in the room you are in. That is the, that is the negative pressure room. Now, depending on the age of the structure, in this particular airborne condition, if the client has splashing or spraying is possible, in that, set, in that situation, the, 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 the patient should wear full face protection. It could be a nose mask, it could be a mouth mask, or it could be an eye shield. If, if, if the client who is only airborne have has a probability of of, 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 of of infecting other people through splashing or spraying, then those that come in the room can wear uh they can wear um face, nose, and eye shield. Then for droplet precautions, um these precautions are there to protect against droplets that are larger than five micrograms. So any organism that is larger than five micrograms they will use droplet precaution. Now, and you got to be at least, you got to be at least three to six feet away from the patient who has a droplet condition to prevent yourself. Three to six feet. Now, if we say three to six feet in the ankle and you have three feet, four feet, five feet, six feet, six feet should be the correct answer in the ankle. So if you have any question in that you see that there are three answers and one answer is the safest one, Choose the safest of all the answer. They might give you a question where they will say three feet, six feet. Six feet is the safest for a patient who has a droplet infection, so that becomes the one you want to choose as the correct answer. In droplet precaution, conditions include the client might have example for those conditions include strep pharyngitis or strep pneumonia, hemophilus influenza, TB, scarlet fever, rubella, not rubio, but rubella. R-U-B-E-L-L-A. Rubella is a droplet precaution. Um, you have pertussis. You have mumps. You have the mycoplasma pneumonia. You have meningococcal pneumonia. And you have sepsis. You have pneumonic plague. These are all droplet conditions that we have to implement. There two droplet precaution for these conditions. Wait, can you spell Rubella? The one with the O is trapped, right? The one, the one, the, the one that come with uh, the one, the oh. one of the O is uh, is airborne. Ready? Hold on, let me let me make sure. The one, the one is, the one is, is trapped. Sorry, right? it's Minso. The, the one with O is is Minso, right? 
The German minister, no. the, the one with the oh, oh, it's Misa. It's Misa, right? It's German Misa. German Misa is 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 Chaplin. So the that's the one with the O. Misa. That's what I said. The the one with the O. German Misa. Okay, so so, so 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 the one with the O is the Rubiola. Now, and let's let's get this clear. We understand that Misa, a Misa as a condition, is why. Miso is airborne. Miso mm. is airborne. Miso, all miso is airborne because miso has a microorganism lower than five grams. So the one of the O is airborne. The one, the one of the LL is droplet precaution. The one that carries the O is an airborne. Now, then another thing there is for the for the note that those with droplet will also go in the private room. With other patients who have the same infection, ensure that these clients have their own equipment, masks for provider who are going to come in to provide for them care or to pay them visit. Those are uh, pertinent information about droplet precaution. Then we have the contact precaution. The contact precautions are to protect individuals, caregivers, and those who come in to visit those patients that they cannot come in contact with the patient they should stay at least three feet away from the patient um unless they are wearing ppes to protect them against this condition example for those contact precautions include but they are not limited to this following condition one you have rsv respiratory syncytial virus shigella enteric diseases uh wound infections Happy simplex, impetigo, scabies or scabiasis, multi-drugs resistant organism, MRSA. These are all contact precaution conditions. Now, they're they talking about enteric diseases. The book did, or the English material did, did not specify one. So we have diarrhea. It could be cholera. It could be jack diasis. All of those are all enteric conditions. Any GR <coughs> condition that involve vomiting, that involve diarrhea, if it is if it's a, if it's a disease condition, we should do a contact precaution with those conditions. Now, like a I'm not cutting you, all right? Mm -hmm. Because I had this in my English, the German missus. You said all missus are airborne. Any missus that, that is below five microgram. 5 mcg is airborne because we said because below 5 mcg is airborne because why we mm. the question you know to they were asking for the the, the the precaution for the for the particular they said general visa mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and i kind of understand mm -hmm. i know i got that question wrong because i said airborne mm -hmm. because i kind of understand that general visa is also refers to a rubella, yeah. which is yeah so a rubella is not or airborne rubella is a uh, droplet it's a droplet so, uh, mm -hmm. now um now i'm not saying that it, it it is because now there there'll be few of these questions that you will answer mm -hmm. it according to how it is presented within the question now let's take for example um According to these precautions, 
droplets are droplets because they are macro and they are above five micrograms in size yeah. of the infection agent airborne is considered airborne because the particles that are causing this condition they are so small they are below five micrograms but again there might be other exception to uh to it yes i remember one of our one of our cousins uh, i use i think if you look in the sunders you will see that on all droplets i'm sure because i remember seeing it on a droplet but now the material i'm using for the atr it says it, it is on a airborne so um let's look at it let's let's do another research and see whether it is airborne or, or it is droplet but i know that if it's below five microgram it is considered to be airborne so they said mensos varicella pulmonary conditions laringa tb they are all on a uh yeah they have two they have two kind of measles one is just measles the other one is general measles that's what confused me in England. One is just Misa. The one when I say Misa, that's the one I have the O. Okay. When I say Chemo Misa, we are the O in Rubella. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So, so the LLA LL, LL so, is droplet. So now let's now now this 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 work a research. Let's research and see. I, okay. I, I I I I can understand the point that you are making. Um we have different kind of mensos now when it comes to the rubella b-e-l-a that is clearly written in all the book that it is a droplet precaution condition but yeah. me, i'm going to well, take what the time. Saying, in the england sometimes they don't put rubella and they put, they put mensos now put and sometimes miso. and sometimes yeah. they don't put mensos a child mm. of mensos yeah. i have seen that a lot so so yes, mm -hmm. we can do. You know when they put miso, that's clearly or airborne. But when they add a gemma to the miso, with these conditions, please answer it according to how it will come in the English. The reason is, you see, we, we this material we're using here, ATR material, it says rubella is a droplet precaution condition, right? Now, but you might see other book. Also, you might like what you just put it right. It says it's both droplet and airborne. Now, in the same way, it is considered both droplet and airborne. It makes sense, and, that, and that's what I said. Any condition that is droplet, in a sense, it is also an airborne. But what would differentiate from other main airborne condition is the distance at which it is traveled when it is introduced into the atmosphere. It might not be as long compared to the one that I have larger particles more than five micrograms so um let's say even in the case of a uh, in the case of other conditions that like in the case of pertussis mums these are droplet precaution condition but how do they become droplet you cough them out where are you coughing out? you are coughing out into the air right so the further they are being coughed into the air and they get into the atmosphere that makes that makes them to be also airborne but the reason why they consider them to be judged because the their particles are larger than five micrograms so if they are larger than five five micrograms they might not go very far and wide to cause infection and that's why if you stand above six feet from the person who having this condition when they cough their particles from their mouth from their nose from their uh, uh from their body will not reach to you within six feet 
So some, so you will see that a, so you will see that a, 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 condition, a, condition, a condition that is droplet could also be an airborne. But what is what in here is in the anklets, in the anklets, we answer this question according to how they're going to appear. So take for example, if we have, if we have, the solution of the following condition is an airborne condition. In that condition, you have one. If we had, let's say, if we had hemophilus, you had pneumonia, you had scarlet fever, and you have rubella. All four, in a sense, they are all droplet. But among the four, the most commonly used one that, that, that can be both droplet and airborne is the rubella. So you go ahead and choose the rubella. Now, in the ankle, if you had rubella, and you have rubella in the anklets, and you have scarlet fever, you have pneumonia, which one is airborne? Among them, the one that is not the airborne is the rubella, R-U-B-E-O. That B-E-O is not an airborne. So because of that, you will choose that over the other ones. So you answer the question in anklets according to how the question is going to come. And that's why... Yeah, that's what I say. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, they are saying that because they said, you see that you see the, the name, mm -hmm. Rubella, and you need to, you see, you see, German, Misa, then you said another name. So that's how, my point is not the classification. Mm -hmm. My point is different names. Sometimes they don't use the name that we know. Exactly. They might, they might also do that. But uh, we just want for the answer the question according to how it will appear in the English. Because the English is a standardized test. The English yeah. is not about, how, sometimes it's not about how correct the information is. It's not about that. It's about, because... You are being prepared for the real world event. A lot of things we would do in the real world, or uh, we cannot do it in we cannot do it in school. You will be you will get involved into a tight situation that will require you to do a critical thinking. How can you critically think and solve that problem becomes the challenges that are that, that nurses can encounter on the unit or on the world in the hospital. Because um in the end class, you read the question according to you, you attempt to answer the question according to what you see on your computer. And we should learn to do that because a lot of times, like, like this example, you might see things that are not correct. Like in the end, you will see some lab results that are not what you've been doing over the past time. So you use your clinical judgment, look at them, and look at the one that is within the range. You, you pick it out as, as your correct answer. That happens in the English, in the English a lot. So let's so let's move ahead. So we have this okay. contact precaution condition. The client will need a private room or client will have the same condition. You wear gloves, gowns to give to give uh to help the patient. You wear protective you, you wear these things to help to prevent disease transmission. The last portion of this infection this precaution entire two is protective precaution. In this protective precaution. Um, we protect clients who are immunocompromised, such as clients who have uh, who have gone through some stem cells transplantation, clients who have immunocompromised condition, or clients who on those drugs like they on chemotherapy, they have low or less immunity. So we help them to want to prevent them from having infection from other sources. So for them, they can be placed in a private room. Also, for them. They can be placed in a positive pressure room. In a positive pressure room, 
there is always 12 or more air exchanges. In the negative pressure room, there is always between 6 to 12 air exchanges per hour. In positive pressure room, there is more than 12 air exchanges in an hour. Um, they, for them, they can use masks if they're going outside. For the, for the airborne condition individuals or patients, we use masks when we are going into their rooms. For patients who have who are, who are on the protective precautions, they use masks when they are coming out because they have low immunity and they do not want to infect themselves with what we breathing outside or breathing out outside. These are things to look out for this patient. Any question on this condition? So one thing I want to look at is the age developmental problems. We have to go on and look at those things and make sure we are good with them. Our age, the age problems uh, when a child is um, a child who is a child, an infant, what an infant would do that become a risk for them. And how can we solve those problems for infant? For infant, we want to look at the various reflexes. It's important. Look at when these really will appear and when they are going to disappear. Look at the injuries. Look at the those cognitive developmental theories. We look at them. They are in our the in one of our recordings in pediatrics or also in our recordings on a fundamental. We look at what Erickson said, what Piaget said about these ages. Look at the prevention of injuries for infants. Look at aspiration. That's one of the most important preventive measures for them. How to avoid them from swallowing objects like grapes, coins, and candies. Look at that. Then we'll move to toddlers. For toddlers, they are aging from one to three years of age. We'll look at um, what are what is the concept of body images. What are they appreciate their body? What do they want to do with their body? How do they feel about their body? Those are things you want to read about and listen to the audio on it. Then we'll move to the next one, the preschooler. We'll have a review of this age group until the end because we did it before. We have to go back and make sure we understand this age developmental, uh, about age development. It's important to go and look at them. Now, so let's go back to what we were looking at yesterday. Let's continue um, for our tips Care. Um, we do foot care mostly for individuals who are diabetic, and uh, if you have diabetes, you want to make sure care for your body parts are done in appropriate ways to prevent complication of diabetes. And one of those complications that can cause serious body parts loss is foot care so soaking the feet is not recommended for clients who have diabetes it used to be recommended before in the past time in recent end class we do not recommend soaking of the feet when a patient has diabetes um we can cut the nails but the nails should be done by a podiatrist 
and we cut the toes nails or the fingernails straight across we do not go on the side to clip the side of the nails it is cut strictly across making sure that we cannot clip we, we do not clip some of the tissues of the fingers or the toes because if we do it's going to cause serious problem it's going to cause so and that so will not heal it might end up to the toes or the legs amputation they got to do muff care then 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 for muff care for muff care you want to eat coarse fibrous food such as fresh fruits or raw vegetable that can help to provide good care for your mouth they are cleansing food so in the end class cleansing foods are those food that are fresh fruit they could be coarse c-o-a-r-s-e or they could be uh fibrous foods like fruits they are all called a cleansing the cleansing fruits they help the water to cleanse your mouth your teeth and other things to prevent other things from occurring in there and for our mouth we do dental checkups everywhere every six months every six months we have to visit the dentist at least once every six months meaning twice a year we have to visit the dentist and then uh we also um when it comes to oral care for patients that, that are unconscious we want to make sure we place them in a side lying position so for unconscious patient whenever we are providing care for them the best position for them is what side lying position um we have the suction machine ready just in case if we put some fluid in their mouth to cleanse their mouth if we can take it up gotta use the suctioning machine to have a suction from the mouth before it causes aspiration then we have the hair shampoo now we do hair care um hair shampoo i want you to review hair care for a client who has pediculosis because it is one of those disease conditions that, that will need hair care now for client who gonna go in hair shampoo the client is placed diagonally in bed so the client is in a diagonal position in bed to do the hair care um we want to pluck the we want to make sure we cover the client eyes with washcloth if we are giving them hair shampoo we want to make sure we pluck the ears with cutting boards in the ear because the shampoo we don't we don't want to sip and go and go into the client ear canal so we're going to fill the ears hole with 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 cutting boards um want to make sure we massage the the scalp with the parts with, with fat parts of the finger to promote scalp perfusion or scalp circulation it is important to do that for the client who is undergoing shampoo of the hair even the client is unconscious yes the client got to go through that to provide good hair hygiene restrain i guess there's somebody said in restraint, we need doctor order in doctor's order in restraint. Um, in some cases, we can do the restraint and obtain a doctor order within 24 hours, depending on the facility policy. Before um, the restraint can be uh, or, 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 or in during restraint, so we can either call the doctor before the restraint 
or we can restrain the client and call it that that within certain hours, sometimes four hours, depending on the fertility policy, to make sure um the restraint is implemented the restraint order is written down. Want to make sure the client has restraint. How many minutes do we check them every time? Every 15 minutes we check for what circulation. Every 15 minutes the client is checked for circulation if the client has a restraint. Want to remove the restraint every two hours for 30 minutes. If the restraint is good more than two hours, after every two hours, the client restraint should be removed. And if it is if it requires to be to be put back, then we'll put it back. But at least every two hours, we'll take it out for 30 minutes and we'll wait to see why the client is having good circulation. We have three types of restraints. We have um Three types of for restraint. We said um, there are three kinds of restraint. We have chemical restraints, we have physical restraints, and we have seclusion. Now, for chemical restraint, is where we use medication to sedate the patient to control the patient behavior. That is for chemical restraint. Physical restraint is we apply direct force or some form of force with or without permission to calm the patient down. If the patient becomes violent to others or the patient involved into any threatening behavior that, that will destroy their own life or body parts. For seclusion, it is also involuntary confinement wherein the patient is placed in a locked room. Sometimes, um, the patient might ask to go to the quiet room or to seclusion seclusion room because the patient is not feeling safe. In that situation, it is not considered as a restraint. So let's say the patient is hearing voices on the unit. The patient is having anxiety and they walk to the nurse. Oh, I cannot go to the quiet room. Why? Because I'm hearing voices and they are very strong. In that situation, it is not a restraint. The patient has voluntarily asked to go to the quiet room or to the seclusion room. That is not a restraint. Now, then we have um, for the procedure, ensure that the client have face-to-face -face assessment. That is the nurse. So there's, there's, there, 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 there is something we call face-to-face. -face. So after a restraint, we have what we call face-to-face. -face. So after a restraint, um, Every restraint you have, you should have a nurse go to the client and do a face-to-face face with the assessment. Go to them and, and, and you do deep breathing, you do face-to-face -face assessment with them. You go through the process. How did it happen? You got to go through it. It is required for every restraint. Now, you want to ensure that, that the restraint orders are renewed every 24 hours. We, a restraint cannot be a standing order. Like doctor said, when every time this guy starts to shout or he's a hair bang, which restrain now, restrain cannot be extended order. It got to be a renewed order every 24 hours. Now, um, tie the restrain using clothed hitch, meaning the hair should not be hard to loosen. It should be something that it should be easy to easy to be loose. If you want to untie it, it should not go through problem. Secure the tie in a non 
in the in the part of the bed that cannot move. You cannot tie the restraint to the bare side rails because the side rail can move up and down or it can move or it, 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 it can move on the side. So if you tie it on the side of the bare rails, if the bare rails, if the bare side rail is moving, the restraint might get tightened or it might get loose. So we tie the restraint on the bed frame instead of on the side rails. Any question of that? Then let's look at medication. In medication administration, we want to make sure the sex rights are followed in drugs administration. Those sex rights, when we are using medication, the nurse got to compare. Pastor, can you throw a light on the other thing, like the first restraint? I have a little bit of confusion there. Now, um, which vest restraint or, or which one minute you want to look, look at? The one that funny because I want to know where the mm -hmm. where the, the clip go when they restraining the like restraining the bed to, to the bed where our first using our first. Okay, so for the vest restraint, um. Give me one second. Let me just pull it out. Now, the vest retreat is a whole procedure. And uh, uh. it's a procedure. So I'm going to like uh, put it in, into the group chat. You, we'll look at the do's and don'ts about vest restraint. How to do the vest restraint. You want to make sure to document the patient's behavior, what steps you have taken to change it and did not change. And now it has required you to do a vest restraint. We'll look at that. We'll provide privacy. And uh, if, if the patient needs to have a to have a drip as needed, we're going to put that on. Um, some of the patient can be sitting in a wheelchair. We can do a vest restraint because in the wheelchair, the patient might not, not tie the patient. So we just do the vest restraint to the patient's chest. And towards the back of the wheelchair, but they have uh the the velcro. Sometimes you gotta tie. Sometimes you use velcro to do the vest restraint. So I, I'm gonna put in the group chat. I will put in uh the do's and don'ts about the vest restraint because it's, it it is a whole article that I will have to go through from start to end. So All as right, soon as this is over, I will, I will I will upload it into the group chat. Now let's look at the six rights of medication. Now um. This is real medication. We all know the cis real medication. So just make sure that everything about those cis rights are, are read and done before we can uh, administer medication. The red drugs, the red dose, the red time, the red patient, red documentation, the red route are the cis rights of drug administration. We make sure those things are in place. Now, for this medication, we all know that. Uh, PO drugs are what we call they are uh, clean procedure. They are medical asepsis. Make sure wash our hands. Use um, hand sanitizer between medication. If our hands are not visibly soiled, like I talk about, then these are things we go on to do. Now, don't look at narcotics. It comes with drugs. Narcotics. What we do with narcotics? It comes with drugs. Now, remember we talk about. Um, narcotics has different types. You know, 
through with the type of narcotics, the substances are uh, substance one, substance two, it has different types. Now, but my concern is uh you want you want to make sure now in drugs administration one big rules to administering drugs is you do you never administer any unfamiliar medication any drug that you don't know do not administer it and that's why when you're on a unit when you see drugs that you don't know research it before you can administer it please know something about the drugs before you can administer it it takes you no time to use the same computer on which you are on and getting medication and search the drug's name the drug class the drug side effect the antidote read about it. even if it is five minutes read before you administer the medication you use only drugs that are labor in continuing you get administered the one you see with all labor on it with all name on it you do not give it that's why we never allow our colleague to draw up a medication and ask us to serve it. You have to do it. If the drug does not have a name, you don't serve it. It is not you, the nurse, responsible to why to relabel a drug. You call your friend, say, Oh, the drugs in the bottle without name is a Tylenol. Can you please write on the Tylenol? No. You don't. It is not a prerogative to write on to relabel a drug. It is the pharmacist supposed to write or relabel a drugs because it is their role so you never use a drugs like that or relabel a medication in in the end class return any liquid that becomes clouded in color to the pharmacy meaning it, it has a problem if it, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it if it makes forms it create cloud it changes color and it is not normal please do not administer it return it to the pharmacy not to the nursing director it is that of the pharmacy it should be returned to uh, before you administer a medication make sure you identify the client correctly do not leave a drug at the bedside still the client until actually takes the medication if the drug is not going to work do not leave it at the bedside if you forgot the syringe, do not leave it at the bedside. If you were getting the medication and the client vomited the medication after you get the medication to the client, report this to the nurse in charge or the physician. Do not re-administer the medication. No. Report it to the nurse in charge or the DON or to the doctor who ordered the medication. Do not re-administer drugs that the client vomited after you administer it. Do not leave um, the nurse who prepared the drugs should administer it. Only the nurse who prepares the drugs knows what the drug is. Do not accept medication endorsement. It is wrong in nursing and we do not do it in nursing. Um, for pre-op medication, they are discontinued during the post-op period unless it is ordered. That means the drugs the patient were taking before the surgery, which are called the pre-op medication, right after the surgery, those drugs cannot be continued unless doctor says 
continue this drug with order, then you can continue. But if it is necessary that they should be continued, you do not continue pre-op drugs into post-op period. It is wrong because it's going to cause problem. Now, when a medication is omitted for any reason, you want to recall the fact together with the reason. Doctor order you to omit this medication. The client has a procedure coming in two days. You, 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 you want to record the medication and for the, re the reason for which it was it was omitted, please record it as a nurse. When the drugs has error, when you make an error for this medi for any medication, report it right away to the nurse in charge or the physician to implement measure that will safeguard the patient immediately. This can prevent adverse reaction of drugs that might be too late for us to handle if you did not uh, report it at the right time. Um, for oral medications, it has advantages. It also has disadvantages. It's easier and it's the most desirable ways to administer medication. It is convenient, it is safe to use. It does not break the skin barrier. It is usually less expensive. But the reason why it is not good to use oral drug always because one, it cannot, uh, if the client cannot swallow or the client has GI problem, we cannot administer the drugs through PO. The drug sometimes has some unpleasant taste. It makes it difficult for the client to continue taking the drugs. Um, the client might throw the drug out or vomit the drug after taking the drugs due, due to how unpleasant it is. For solid tablet, it might it comes in tablets. For solid medication, it comes in tablet, it comes in pill, it comes in powder, and it comes in capsule. For liquid, it comes in syrup, it comes in uh, suspension. It comes in emulsion, it comes in elixir, milk, or other alkaline derivatives. For syrup, we want to understand this definition for this medication. Now, for syrup, syrup is sugar-based liquid medication. Syrup has sugar in it, and the drugs is added to it to be given. For suspension. It does not have to have sugar in it. It is a water base. So drugs that contain sugar and it comes in liquid form is a syrup. Drugs that contain no sugar and comes in liquid form is a suspension. Now, for emulsion, emulsion drugs are drugs that contain oil base. So I want to answer this for the for the LP and the LVNs. Let's answer that a drug that comes with sugar is a syrup. If it has a sugar base, it's a syrup. Water base is suspension. Oil base is emulsion. If it comes in alcohol base, it becomes elixir. E-L-I-X-I-R. It is alcohol base. It is alcohol based liquid medication. It's elixir. So after you administer this medication, you should allow 30 minutes to pass before the client can drink water. So if the medication is alcohol-based, if it's an elixir, you gotta you gotta you gotta wait at least thirty minutes before the client can drink water, or else you will dilute the product of the drugs that the client takes that the client has taken in.
So you want to wait for 30 minutes until the drugs is absorbed before you can get a client water to, water to drink. So you're going to understand that these drugs and the way how they come, you're going to understand the way how they're going to come. Liquid medication, syrup, suspension, emulsion, Alexa, know what is containing in them. You never, ever, never, ever crush any drug that is sustained release, SR. You never cross SR medication. You never crush enteric coated medication. This, if you crush enteric coated medication, um, it allows the irrigating medication to come in contact with the oral or gastric mucosa. It might result into gastritis or into mucositis. It might affect the mucosa lining of the intestines. Crushing any drug that says SR, sustained release medication, it will allow the drugs to be absorbed at the same time where other medications are being absorbed. If it is not to be absorbed where it is crushed, it's going to be absorbed in those areas. So we do not crush SR medication. SR means sustained release. So it remains in its form until it reaches where it's supposed to reach before it gets absorbed or it gets dissolved. Now, uh, for sublingual medication, you place them on your tongue where it dissolves. When these drugs are in capsule and they are oral sublingually, the fluid must be aspirated from the capsule and placed under the tongue. So if a drug was in a capsule and it's all to be given sublingually, we got to open the capsule and pour that liquid on our tongue until it is dissolved. Now, because if you leave it in the capsule, it wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't dissolve under the tongue. When these drugs are also... Um, so, if the drugs is in capsule and other sublingually, the fluid must be aspirated from the capsule, like I said. A medication given by the sublingual route should not be swallowed. We cannot change the route of medication. If it is to be given nasally, that's how it should be given. It should be given uh, through a hole, through PO, we should not crush it. If it's to be crushed, we should not swallow it. If it's to be true, we should not swallow it. It wouldn't work effectively unless it is given to be given, unless it is administered in the way how it should be administered. Then we have um, drugs for the skin. Topical medication. For topical medication, it could be dermatological problem. The client might have dermatologic problem, which include lotion, which include liniment, ointment, and powder are all topical medication. Before you administer any drug that is topical, you want to clean the skin thoroughly and wash away the soap and wash with soap and whatever you administer it. You want to use surgical asepsis when you open when the client has open wound. You want to remove previous application of the topical agent before you can apply new one. Use gloves when you are applying this medication over large surfaces, like in the in the kind of burn area. You want, you, you, you want to wear gloves to administer this medication. Now, apply only a thin layer. Apply only a thin layer of the medication to prevent systemic absorption. If you are to put in atomic eye solution for such medication, it will either involve installation 
and irrigation. Now, if we are to do atomic installation, if we are doing atomic installation, in this situation, it provides an we are providing an ad medication that the client requires. If we are to use uh, atomic irrigation, meaning we are clearing away some other organizing from the client eye that are not supposed to be there. So we irrigate the eye to remove nauseous or foreign material from the client eyes. So in we have irrigation and we have installation of eye ointment or eye medication. If it is if it is installation, we are wash. I'm sorry. If it is installation, we are putting in a drugs to kill. If it is eye irrigation, we are putting a drugs to wash away or to remove any particle that is not supposed to be in the eyes. That's what happening in there. So we have eye insulation and we have eye irrigation. So the client can be position sitting or the client can be lying. We use a sterile techniques to do such procedure. We clean the client eyelids and the client eyelashes with a sterile cutting bulbs. Must we should musting the, the sterile cutting bulbs should, uh, should be musting with some normal saline solution from the inner canter to the outer canter of the eyes. That's how we do eye irrigation or eye installation. So these are things we have, we have to do with the patient, with eye medication. Now, want to instill eye drives into the eye from the lower, from the lower, from the lower, uh, eye, instill eye drop into the lower, Meaning that you open the eye like this, and this lower on the you want to put in the eye drop or the eye um, in there. You can put it in the middle, but you always place it in the lower one of the eyes. You want to put in maximum two drops at any given time of any eye medication. And if you have to put in two different drops into the eye at the same time, you give at least five minutes apart to give the second medication. These are the way in which we can do for there to be a proper absorption of the medication when we are dealing with the eye. Avoid dropping the solution of the eye medication or, or the automatic solution into the eye cornea. You never want to drop drugs into the cornea of the eye. It might cause eye irritation and it can cause discomfort to the eye if you do it directly. Now, we must understand some of these cheap procedures I call it cheap because we, we know them. But sometimes the rationale for them, we might not know them. And in the end class, we'll know the procedure and the rationale for which it is done. We might miss it. We know that when you put the drugs in the eye, you start from the inner kernel to the wire to the outer kernel. Why do we do it? Sometimes we don't know it. If you put in drugs into the eye, we know that you don't put the drugs to the cornea. The drugs is administered to the wire to the inner kernel of the eyes. Why sometimes we don't know it? And the reason could be if you put it on the cornea itself, it might cause eye discomfort or eye irritation. Now, you want to make sure the client will close their eyes gently, shutting the eyes tightly, causing that will uh, wish or uh, uh, if the client close their eye tightly, what happens? It helps the wire spill out 
the medication from the eye. So if you put eye drop into the eye and you close your eye so high, what happens? The droplet of drugs will flow and come out of the eye. And then the purpose for which it was it was administered, it cannot be uh, it cannot be utilized. So you close your eyes gently. For liquid medication, you want to press firmly on the nasal lacrimal dot, the indicator of the eyes, for at least 30 seconds. Close your eye, you press here for 30 seconds, and then you let, you let go the eyes lacrimal area. That can help for the jaw to be into the eyes and get into where it's supposed to be. Um, for at least 30 seconds to prevent systemic absorption. Any question? Now, for ear medication, um, it is mostly instilled to remove serumen, pores, or remove foreign body from the ear. That's the reason why we will put in, we will put in ear medication in our insulations. Now, it should be warm, not hot. It should be warm at least at room temperature. We cannot put cold medication or solution into the ears. Um, it can cause vertigo. It might cause nausea and pains in the ear, and the client might become dizzy if we put in any warm, any hot liquid or cold liquid in the ear. It should be warm with room temperature. That's why we keep oil solution and ear solution or medication over in a cool place, not cold, not hot, in a room temperature area. Just where we can have it cannot be affected by cold or the heat that can cause it to get warm or or to, or, or to get hot or to get cold the client should assume a side lying position if it is not contraindicated with the ear to be treated facing up the ear that is affected is faced up and the drugs is instilled into the ear and we know for adults the ears are pulled up wall and back for children it is pulled down wall and back wall for the adults. Uh, sorry, for children under three years old. So children zero to three. So now let me just be straight on this. Children between zero to three years of age, the ear pinna is pulled is pulled down wall and back wall. So you pull it down wall and back wall for zero to three. Now three years and above. You pull up wall and back wall. Then you instill the ear drops on the side of the auditory canal to allow it to flow into the ear canal. You press gently for a few times on the trigger of the ear to assist the flow of the drugs of the medication to the ear. You do that. Um, you ask the client to remain in this position for at least five minutes at times, the MD will order you to insert cutting puff into the outermost ear. You can do that, but do not press it into the ear canal. So you remove the cutting bulb, the cutting after 15 minutes. That's how you do it for the ears. Then you have the nasal passage. If you have to instill nasal medication, um, sometimes it can have some other effects due to swollen mucous membrane or the client is having loose drainage coming out of the nose. Some of the reasons, those are some of the reasons why we can put in nasal medication. It could be nasal decongestant, it could be nasal steroids, it could be nasal calcitonins, or what have you.
Now, you have the client first to blow the nose before you can put in the medication, unless blowing nose is contraindicated. When the client is to take any nasal medication, make sure the client blow the client blows his or her nose before you can what? put in the medication, unless if it is contraindicated. Like in the key, if the client has a surgery, if the client blows her, his or her nose, the client will have the surgical Era, the suture, the, the sutures are broken. Another thing is, um, you gotta make sure you have, uh, you assume the client should be lying at the back lying position to put in the medication. To put to put in to put in the medication. Now, you gotta also elevate the client nose. To make sure um, the drugs enter in the nose, and you put a tip of the nose, and you pull the head backward, and you instill the drugs in there. Keep the head up or head tilted for up to at least five minutes after the drugs is placed in. Y'all do that. Keep the uh, when the medication is used on a daily basis. You want to change the nasal passage daily change it how you administer it you want to shake the canister and make sure several time to mix it uh if it is inhalation for drugs that are given inhalation through inhalations it could be used as a nebulizer as, as a nebulizer it could be used as a meter dose inhaler um the client can assume a semi follow position or a follow position for or a standing position you want to shake it, like I said, many times before you can administer it. Um, you want to put in a mouthpiece if the client will require mouthpiece to at least introduce most of the medication into the client or uh, 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 into the client airway. Then you gotta use a mouthpiece. This, if you use a mouthpiece, always it allow us to have accurate amount of drugs introduced to the client airway. And that's why it's good sometimes to use the mouthpiece in these conditions. Like when you're using meter dose inhaler or using nebulizer, the mouthpiece will allow you to, to, to introduce both of the medications to the client airway. That can happen in this case. Um, tell the client to hold the breath for 10 minutes. When you put it into the client, if the client do the inhalation, you, you gotta hold the client gotta hold that breath for at least 10 for at least uh 10 seconds so that the drugs can be introduced to the client airway. Now, when you use, if the client uses um, a raw, one good sign to know that the client, the drugs has hit the client airway, the client will cough. If you puff, if you take two puff, puff, puff of the abiduro or any drug that you inhale, after a few seconds, you will see coughing from the client or you'll see some reaction. That means the client is ready taking the drugs into the nasal or into the airway. you see some reaction. Either they will cough or they will, their breath will change for a few seconds, then they will start to go back to normal breathing pattern. You'll see that with the client. If the client is using bronchodilators, you want to administer two puffs for at least 30 seconds interval. You want to administer the bronchodilator before any other drug that the client will inhale. So if the client has two different drugs to inhale, 
you want to always use the bronchodilator first before the other medication. Now, it could be corticosteroids, it could be any other drug, it could be uh, it could be uh, 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 mast cells inhibitors, any of those drugs you want to use them with bronchod bronchodilators. You use the bronchol first before the other drugs, which can open the airway and promote greater absorption of the next medication. That's why you are using the bronchol first before the other, other drugs, because it will open the airway and it will create more space for the other drugs to be inhaled through the through your best means compared to the second drugs. You wait at least one minute between the two drugs administration before you can put in the second one. So you, if you have like a, the MDR and other medication, you wait at least, you wait at least one minute between the next dose of the medication. Tell the client to rinse their mouth if the client is on steroids medication. This, because steroids can cause the client to have what can be the in their mouth or trash in their mouth. So the client needs to rinse their mouth with any steroids medication that is inhaled. So in the end class, the end class is going to ask you, a client inhale a steroid medication, what's the next action? Rinse their mouth. So look at the question and look at the, the option. Please, sometimes the, 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 the simplest of the answers will be, the, of the option will be the correct answers. The simplest of the options could be the correct most answer. So when you read the, the, the end question, you do not have to think or overthink. Just think according to what the question has presented to you and use your knowledge. Everything that you have for the question, use it to what? To answer the question. If we have drugs that will be administered vaginally, for those vaginal medication, they might come in tablets, they might come in liquid or douches, they might come in jelly forms or they might come in vaginal suppository forms. You want to close the room and provide the client privacy. If they, if they have a roommate, you want to close the curtains. Assist the client to lie down. In most cases for this drugs procedure, the client will assume docile recovery position. They will lie down and they will flex their knee on their abdomen to relax their abdominal muscle and give the clinicians access to the groin or the pelvic areas um for these individuals who on this who's on this vaginal medication um we allow the suppository to dissolve after having good access to the vaginal canal um without escaping through the vaginal orifice the orifice we might use sometimes an applicator to insert the medication or or, or the suppository or we might use sterile glove to push it in to where we want it to be. Sometimes if we have to do vaginal irrigation, it's just the means of watching the vagina by a liquid at a low pressure. It is called douche. So when we are douching, or when we douche, it's like we are like washing uh, the, vagin the, the vagina with liquid that is at a low pressure, not high pressure. We want to make sure the bladder is empty before the procedure. Before you make sure the client enters the bladder, that's one thing you gotta do. And position the client on the back with the hips higher than the shoulder. You can use a bed pen to do that. 
The client lies down. The client is on his. Uh, the client is on her back. And it's a bad pain under the client buttocks to lift up the hips. That's what we do when we're doing vaginal irrigation. You ask the client to remain in bed for at least five to ten minutes after the after you administer vaginal suppository, vaginal cream, foams, jelly, or vaginal irrigation. The stays in that the client stays in that position for at least five to ten minutes. That is for vagina medication. If we are doing the rectal medication or rectally, it can be used when the drugs has other tastes or odor and the client cannot tolerate through the PO, then we can use the rectal route. Or to that if, 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 if they can tolerate to that mouth. Then we can use the rectal route. In this rectal route, the drugs needs to be refrigerated as not to make it to be soft. That's why we keep all of our suppository in the refrigerator to prevent it being so soft. Because when it is soft, we cannot insert it rightly. Another thing is you gotta wear glove to insert this medication. The client needs to lie down on which in, 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 in which position on the side or in a same position to have access to the colon. Now, you want to make sure you retract the client buttocks gently to the anus and you pass the internal sphincter muscle and against the rectal wall, which is almost like 10 centimeters for adults and fast the for children and infants. So when you're pushing the drug in, into the client rectum, to hit the rectum, you gotta go in at least 10 centimeters for adult. And for children, fast the into, into the rectum, that's when the drug has reached where it's supposed to be at to, to dissolve and to yield its internal effect. The client needs to relax the fintal muscles. And how do you do that? You gotta ask the client to take deep breath through their mouth and relax the anal finger slowly. That's how you make them to what to relax the muscles in the bottom or in the rectum area to insert this medication. You also want to make sure that uh, you discard the glove like anyone that like anyone would do it after the procedure. You wash your hands. The, the patient must remain on that particular side. That is the silent position for 20 minutes. After the after after the procedure, to allow the drugs to absorb and to start to take its internal internal action before you can if it can change that position. Then we have different parenteral medication, drug that goes into the body directly that does not go through a PO route or other route. It goes through parenterally. This medication include the intraderma. For the intraderma. Um, we okay for parental drug we use needles in short. Now the first error is we do it intradermally. Now for the internal medication, we can use 25 gauge needle, we can use uh 26 gauge needle, we can use 27 gauge needle. I'm sorry, for the interdermal side, let's look at the side for the side, we can use the inner lower arm. The upper chest, the back, or beneath the shoulder, uh, uh, beneath the scapula. 
So we can use those sites to administer intradermal injection. Um, these injections are for like tobacco injection or when a client has some allergies, we can use the intradermal site to provide the injection for the, to the client. Um, like for vaccination, we can use the intradermal for vaccination. For vaccination and intradermal injection, we use 25 gauge needle. We use 26 gauge, you know, we use 27 gauge needle. Now, the length of the needles are always either 3 8, 5 8, or half, or half inches. So it, it could be 3 8 inches, 5 8 inches, or it could be one or two or half inches or, or, or half inch. That is for the gauge of the needle. Now, the needle can be 10 to, 10 to 15 degree angle, meaning the bevel is always upward. That is the opening of the needle in which the drug will pass through to be introduced to the client system is called the bevel. So the bevel needle should always be upward when you are administering this ID medication. For this medication, you inject a small drug slowly over three to five seconds to form a wheel or a blood. So you want to put it on, on you can see a low growth, a low elevation on the skin. That's how you administer ID injection. And for this ID injection, we do not massage the site of the injection because it might create irrit irritation for the skin and it might prevent absorption of the medication. For sub-Q, we can give vaccine subcutaneous. We can give heparin. We can give some pre-operative medication. We can give insulin. We can give some narcotics, even sub-Q. For this sub-Q injection, the site for sub-Q include the outer aspect of the upper arms, the anterior aspect of the thigh, it could be the abdomen, it could be the scapula area, it could be the ventral gluteal muscles. It could be the dorsal gluteal muscle. These are the areas we use to administer subcutaneous injection. And in subcutaneous injection, only a small amount of the medication is injected into the subcutaneous route. It's a very small amount. When we are getting subcutaneous injection, we want to always rotate the site. If it is a routine injection, the site has to be rotated to, to, to avoid muscle hypertrophy problems. We do not aspirate sub-Q injection, whether for heparin. For heparin, we do not aspirate heparin injection. We do not massage the client site after the injection. Now, for this sub-Q injection, we use five uh, we use five or eight needles for adults, and we also use 45 degree angle to administer a sub Q injection. Now, this injection, um, half is used at, at, at another degree angle. So sometimes we can use it at another degree angle, but only half of it can be used at that, at that angle, and we can use the injection at 45 degree angle. If the client is thin, meaning if you have a thin client who does not have enough body fat, we use 45 degree angle 
in getting the subcutaneous injection. If the client is obese, that's when we use. And I get so so we can use. Last time someone asked that uh, I think it was Florence she actually said uh, we use sub Q at ninety five degree, and yes. We can use it at 95 or at 45, depending on the body mass of the patient. If patient is a thin patient, we use it at 45 degree angle. If if obese, we use it at what 90 degree angle. So for like I said, we do, we do not massage the site of heparin after we administer it. We do not um, massage it. If we do, it might create or it might form hematoma. For insulin injection, also we do not massage to prevent rapid absorption, which might result into hypoglycemic uh, problem. So for the heparin, now, if we massage heparin site, it might result into what? Hematoma. If we massage insulin injection site, it might result into what? hypoglycemic reaction because it might it might absorb the blood sugar so readily so fast that the client will have hypoglycemia now also we always inject insulin at negative degree angle to administer the medication in the pocket between the sub q and the muscle layer we want to adjust the length of the needle depending on the size of the client for, medic for, all, for, for all our medication, we can act already before we inject it for all our medication to make sure that it is not being injected into the blood vessel or other blood vessel is not being hit. If the blood appears while we put in, while we're doing the activation, if blood appears in the syringe, we have to um, remove the needle and discard the whole equipment and get a new one. We never push an injection if we activate and we saw blood in the syringe. We never push an injection in there. So the next thing is the needle size is one. Uh, the 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 needle size for this injection could be one inch. It could be one. That is for intramuscular injection. For IM, we could have one inch needle. We will have one and a half inch needle. We will even have two inch, uh, two inch needle to reach the client muscle mass that is being required to administer the IM injection. We will clean the injection site with an alcoholized cutting bulb to make sure to reduce macros in the area and inject the medication slowly to accommodate tissue volume. For the IM injection, it can be administered to the ventral gluteal site. These are sites we want to check up and see where they are. The ventral gluteal site. Check that for it. Check on internet and see where that site is located. Um, the area should contain no large nerve. It should contain no large blood vessel. And it should contain no less fat. If any of these things, any of these areas are like that, we do not administer the drugs to those areas. So if, 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 if there's a large nerve around the like the sciatic nerve, we do not administer this injection. I am at that side. If we have blood vessels around it and we put in the injection and we activate it and we saw blood in the syringe, we do not use that side. 
if we also try it and we saw we saw that uh, there is um there is if we did that and we saw that uh there is any blood around that we cannot still administer these drugs in that particular area. These are things we want to do for the IM injection. For the IM injection, also, we want to make sure that uh, these sites are clean before we can administer these drugs. Likewise, the ventral gluteal muscles, likewise, the dorsal gluteal muscle, and other, like the vastal lateralis, the delta site. These areas are to be clean. Now, one thing will also if the client is to receive five ml of medication, you now want to push five ml into one muscle mass. At least divide it into two or three injections to, to prevent complications. I remember back home in Africa in, in, in Liberia where we inject five ml in one muscle mass. It's not it's not okay. Sometimes it can pose so much risk of complication. Divide it into two or three. You could put two ml on each buttocks. You put two ml on the delta muscle or the vastal lateralis. These are areas that you can use to administer this drug. You don't want to put too much volume of medication into one muscle mass. It might create serious complications. That's good. So what's the max to pull on one muscle? I thought it was 5 ml. It's 5 ml. Approximately mm. 5 ml, but in many cases, you want to always divide it into 2 ml because it's like 5 ml is just too much to go into one muscle mass. So we always divide it. If you put 5 ml, it's going to work, but if you stand a more risk of complication if you divide into 2, 2 ml, 2 ml. Oh, Jack, okay, yeah. the English purpose, I'm, I'm, I can see you have five. For the English purpose, Rest in max 5 ml for adult, 2 ml for kids, right? Yes. Oh. Now, then we have the Z-Track injection. Z-Track is used for iron preparation uh, to seal the drugs deep into the muscle and prevent permanent staining of the skin. We use the Z-Track techniques to administer iron medication, iron dextrin. Now, Iron dextrin comes only in injectables. It does not come in POs. Ferrous sulfate is the PO form of iron dextrin. So ferrous sulfate comes only in PO. If it's going to come in IM or any other type of IV, it's going to come as iron dextrin. Now, for this, for the Z-Track medication administration, you want to retract the skin laterally. Retract the skin laterally. Then the next thing you want to do in there is inject the medication slowly. Hold retraction of the skin until the needle is withdrawn. So when you try the skin, the drugs go in slowly. Hold that skin until you pull out the needle. You do not massage the side of the injection to prevent leakage into the subcutaneous area. This is how you administer the Z-Track injection. You can look it up on YouTube. To have a better understanding on how to administer the Z-Track medication. Any question?